Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Elisa von Jürgen-Forgi, and I am here with my co-host, Irena Victoria Massimino, and we are really honored and very excited today to welcome Maung Zarni, an eminent Burmese scholar and activist who has been shining a light on the struggles of the Rohingya people and the people of Myanmar for many years now. He's with us today to speak about recent developments in Myanmar. Welcome, Zarni. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your uh breakfast uh, or coffee break. We're so, thank you. <laughs> We're so honored you're here. Um, our technical producer is Rafi Zarzatian. You can find us at the Iraqproject.org. That's Iraqproject.org. And we are also on Patreon, Spotify, and iTunes. We're going to start today's podcast, as we usually do, with a rundown of some new news in the world of genocide and its prevention. And as is tradition, we will start with Irena. What have you got for us? Thank you, Elisa, and thank you again, Zarni, for being here with us. I hope this is the start of our mutual collaboration. It's, it's very, very nice to have you here. Thank um, you. So, you're welcome. Um, so for this news today, I got a couple of news. Um, unfortunately, our news segment is always a bit sad because it shows the violence, the level of violence we live in today's world. And uh, my two pieces of news are from the Guardian newspaper, actually, today. And one titles, it's a day off. Wiretaps show Mediterranean migrants were left to die. Exclusive transcripts of conversations between Italian officials and Libyan Coast Guard contained in leaked file. This is a very interesting and very sad news, actually, that reminds us of our meeting we had in 2017 with the Pope, uh, where he expressed his concerns that were also actually public about the situation of migrants in the Mediterranean. Uh, the journalist in this particular case is Lorenzo Tondo from Palermo. And um, it says in this particular uh, wiretaps, uh, a communication between this Libyan Coast Guard called Masoud Abdel Samad received a long distance from call, phone call from an Italian Coast Guard official who told him that 10 migrant dinghies were in distress, many in Libyan territorial waters. His reply was this, I quote, it's a day off, it's a holiday here, but I can try to help. Abdel Salman told the official, perhaps we can be there tomorrow. Later that day, Abdel Samad claimed that his men had saved many of the stricken migrants. According to data complained by IOM, which is the International Organization for Migration, 126 people had died by mm. the end of that week. This is in 2017, exactly when we were having this uh, specific conversation with the Pope. And this issue of migrants being abandoned in the Mediterranean was coming out as, as, as something that was actually intended. The conversation, this is very interesting as well, was recorded by prosecutors in Sicily, which were and are investigating sea rescue charities for alleged complicity in people smuggling. 
and lays bare the indifference of individuals on the Libyan side to the plight of migrants and to international law. As we always say, we'll, we'll uh, hang these articles in our website, so you can visit us there and see the entire article mm. and not just what I'm quoting here. Many NGO members uh, quoted in the article explain that communications with Libya authorities is impossible, no matter which day of the week it is, actually, for many reasons, uh, such as lack of proper equipment or even language skills. Their English, apparently, is not sufficient. And one of these NGO members, I quote, says the crux of the matter, however, remains that the EU is prioritizing surveillance of the borders over search and rescue and has given the responsibility of maritime coordination in a large part to the JRCC, which offices is the Joint Rescue Committee, which main office is in Libya. And we know that uh, uh, people, uh, migrants in, in rescue, between uh, quotes, right, rescue by Libya, end up in, 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 in prison and torture. This is something we brought up in a couple of podcasts before. So we will follow up on this particular investigation, which actually completely turned from its original um, its, its, its original purpose, which was to investigate NGOs, actually, and search rescue organizations. So we'll see what happens from them on, uh, mm. from here mm. on, I mean. Mm. The second, uh, it's another terrible news going to Latin America now, and it's uh, also in The Guardian, police killing hundreds in Rio de Janeiro, in the favelas, despite court ban on favela raids. Uh, the court uh, have banned favela raids since the start of the pandemic, but uh, the Brazilian state has seen nearly 800 police cause death in nine months, with poor city communi commu communities raided almost daily, mm. at least once a day. And I quote here a 36-year-old female school teacher who asked not to be named for security reasons in the article, distributed keys, kids and listen to daily struggles at her Parque Esperanza or Hope Park community in the municipality of Belforroxo in Greater Rio, Rio de Janeiro. I visited households and I saw several people living below the poverty line, she said. And amid this crisis, we have been living in a worse state since January. We have to remember that the favelas are like the slums, right? Is the, the Portuguese name for it. The current wave of violence began when police launched an incursion to set up an outpost in the community of Belforoxo, sparking retaliations from the different gangs. So the situation, uh, this, this shows two particular aspects, the inequality of Latin America that hasn't been mm. properly addressed by governments. Uh, certainly, and then the level of violence these uh, poor communities have to um, deal with in on a daily basis in in the majority of countries in Latin America, actually, and how they're targeted in they're targeted in particular and being discriminated for for this uh, specific condition. Wow! So thank you, Elisa. Yeah, thank you. Those those are two really important news items. Thanks so much, Irena. Um, so what I've got is we have an update on. Um, the quest, I guess, for accountability and reconciliation in the case of the Rwandan genocide. The Rwandan government, as some listeners may remember, that the French government recently released a report. Um, and now the Rwandan government has also released a report on April 19th that states that France was aware that a genocide was being prepared in Rwanda ahead of the 1994 genocide. 
and that France bears significant responsibility for enabling this genocide. This report was drafted by the Washington, D.C.-based law firm Levy Firestone Muse LLP, which was hired by the Rwandan government to investigate France's role in the genocide. What's interesting there is this use of these kind of global legal and PR firms by a lot of states, right? Um, uh, both both for and against uh, <laughs> the crime of genocide, but in this case, to investigate accountability. Now, this report comes on the heels, as I mentioned earlier, of a report released by a French commission in March, which said that France had been blinded, was the word they used, by its colonial attitude to Africa, and therefore bore uh, serious and overwhelming responsibility, though that report cleared France of complicity. And so this raises this question of what exactly complicity is in both a legal and a moral sense. Um, the most recent Rwandan report was in fact received favorably by France. So France seems to, seems to be making, a, at this point, a good faith attempt to account for its past. A French presidential advisor told reporters that that it is a key step in getting our two countries closer. Um, And earlier in April, another sign of good faith, France said that it will open the archives of former French President François Mitterrand uh, to better understand France's role in the genocide. So France seems to be taking some good steps here towards, towards the issue of accountability. And we'll see what that opening of those archives will, will tell us about what France was doing, and perhaps it will expose what we can call complicity, a much more direct complicity. Um, Another bit of news, Aliyev, the president of Azerbaijan, is again threatening Armenia. He uh, recently threatened to take a a, uh, small uh, territory um, in the south of Armenia called Zangazur, right? Uh, He threatened to take this territory by force, whether Armenia likes it or not. And that's a quote from him. Um, This is part of Armenia proper. It's not part of the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh territory. Um, And it would allow uh, Azerbaijan to have a direct link to Turkey. And this is why it's so strategically important. Um, The... uh, Armenia's human rights defender, Armin Tatoyan, said Aliyev's remarks... On Tuesday, point to Azerbaijan's continued advancement of what he calls his, its genocidal policy, adding that the statement that Aliyev made contains intimidation of the entire population of Armenia. That's a theme we've been pursuing in this uh, podcast, which he continues is absolutely prohibited under international law. All this is done by openly distorting historical facts presenting Zangazor as an Azerbaijani historical territory. And we know from previous statements made by Aliyev that, that he basically claims all of Armenia, all of the free republic, independent republic of Armenia as part of Azerbaijan. Tatoyan cited further belligerent statements made by Aliyev last week, where on a few occasions he said that all Armenians suffer from, and here's the quote, Psychological disorders, they are full of poison, are incomprehensible, are savages, are arrogant, have no morals, while saying that the people of Azerbaijan are superior. 
So we've all heard this language before, and we know where it leads. Um, Tatoyan, Tatoyan called Aliyev's remarks a reflection of his fascist policy, calling on international organizations, especially those with human rights mandates, to take action. Yes, please. International organizations must take into account, he said, that it was their silence that contributed to more of the Azerbaijani atrocities during the war and the incredible gross violations of human rights. This is the reason why the president of Azerbaijan makes such absolutely aggressive statements that undermine the foundations of international law. So that's Tatoyan's comment on it. And we have seen that Azerbaijan is operating in complete impunity. Then finally, I want to mention um, an, an, an article in uh, Arab News with such a sad headline, Rohingya refugees observe lonely Ramadan on remote Bangladesh island. And I just want to read a few excerpts from that so we can remember what our Rohingya uh, fellow humans are dealing with in um, in refugee camps. So Rohingya refugees have welcomed the beginning of the month of Ramadan with a sense of solitude and isolation on Bashan Char Island, where thousands were, have been moved by Bangladeshi authorities from the overcrowded camps of Cox's Bazaar. Over 18,500 Rohingya Muslims have been relocated to the remote island in the Bay of Bengal since December last year, despite criticism from rights groups and the UN Refugee Agency over the site vulnerability to severe weather and flooding and criticism that we're very sensitive to. On the other hand, Bangladesh is, is shouldering the, the, the burden of, um, of this genocide almost entirely alone. Bangladesh says it has built housing units and infrastructure on the island for 100,000 refugees to take the pressure off of Cox's Bazaar, which already hosts more than 1.1 million Rohingya. Um, and there's a quote from one Rohingya man who's 37 years old. He said, here I feel very lonely as my siblings, parents, and most of the relatives are living at Cox's Bazaar. During last year's Ramadan, we were all together and had some memorable family get-togethers. Um, now I maintain communications with the family members through mobile phone, but I'm not sure when I can meet them again. Ramadan is a very special month for us Muslims, and we all love to stay together with friends and family during this holy month. Um, uh, Bangladesh has said that with assistance from NGOs such as Islamic Relief Bangladesh, Human Appeal, the Bangladesh Red Crescent Society, and Qatar Charity, the government, it says that it has organized special Ramadan food packages, so that's very nice for the refugees in Basham Char, and they're also trying to put together special gifts on the occasion of the uh, Eid al-Fitr um, celebration, which happens at the end of Ramadan. Um, but they're still looking for Eid aid sponsors. So nobody has yet sponsored these special food packages for the Rohingya. So we call on the international community to go ahead and, and sponsor that with the Bangladeshi authorities. And we want to wish our Rohingya brothers and sisters um, a good Ramadan and let them know that we're thinking of them and fighting, fighting for them. Okay, so um, we are here today with Maung Zarni, who is a UK-based 
Fellow of the Genocide Documentation Center in Cambodia. He's also co-founder of 4C.co. Is that how you pronounce it, Zarni? Yeah, just uh, 4C. 4C, yeah. A South Asian activist organization. And he's Burmese coordinator of the Free Rohingya Coalition with 30 years of engagement in activism, scholarship, politics, and media. As a student in the USA, he co-founded the Free Burma Coalition in 1995 and was widely recognized as a pioneering activist who effectively used the emerging Internet and the World Wide Web for human rights activism. And he's still going strong. Zarni blew the whistle on Myanmar's genocide with a three-year study with Natalie Brinham of the slow-burning genocide of Myanmar's Rohingya, published by the Pacific Rim Law and Policy Journal in 2014. It's an excellent report. And reworking the colonial-era Indian peril, Myanmar's state-directed persecution of Rohingyas and other Muslims, published by the Brown Journal of World Affairs in 2017. His most recent monographs are the Enemy of the State Speaks, Irreverent Essays and Interviews from 2019, and Essays on Myanmar's Genocide of Rohingya, Hinjas also in 2019. In 1998, Zarni completed his PhD as was in Wisconsin on the politics of knowledge and control in Burma under the military rule um, of the leading, oh, oh, under the, the leadership of the American sociologist of education, Michael W. Apple, and the late historian Robert L. Cole, a pioneering expert on Himmler and the SS. He has taught and held research fellowships in the United States, Europe, and Southeast Asia. He is a commentator on human rights, genocide, and Myanmar's current affairs in the mass media. His writings have appeared in the New York in the Times, pardon me, the New York Times as well, The Guardian and the Washington Post. There was recently an excellent op-ed that we'll put up on our website by him in the Washington Post. And he regularly writes for Andolu News Agency. For his impactful combination of scholarship and activism, Zarni was recognized with the Cultivation of Harmony Award by the Parliament of the World's Religions in 2015. It's a beautiful, huge, and well-earned honor. And he was shortlisted for Sweden's Right Livelihood Award in 2018. So thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Alisa. It was a long bio. You should have just cut it to half or a third. <laughs> Not at all. I want people to know there's even more. We could have kept going. <laughs> more to say about your wonderful achievements and, and the great impact you're having on our world. So we are so happy to be able to speak with you today. And we're wondering, um, you're both a scholar and an activist, and those are two roles that are sometimes hard to straddle. Um, so we'd like to hear a little bit more about how you got to activism what led you uh through your phd and then on to activism um and maybe a little bit in that story about how you grew up where you studied what influenced you to take the path in life that you have taken um what influenced you to leave myanmar for example yeah um um <clears throat> Well, firstly, thank um, Irene and uh, and you, Elisa, for um, having me on your show. Um, it, it's really a privilege to, um, to to share my thoughts with um, you know two very thoughtful scholars and practitioners um, yourself. Um, firstly, 
will interrupt or stop me at any moment. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, if I go on too long, or uh, if you, if if I say something and that triggers uh, the need to interrupt, <laughs> you know, be, do not be polite. That's okay, funny. great. Likewise, <laughs> <Yeah>. likewise. <laughs> yes. Um, firstly, you know, I, I think when you say. I'm a scholar and um, an activist. I actually don't like this, um, you know, scholar and activist. Actually, I go with scholar, um, you know, hyphen activist. It's nice. like, you know, Foucauldian power knowledge. Yeah. Um, that, that we cannot separate scholarship, which is an attempt to en enlighten others you know just as you have enlightened yourself with your scholarship mm -hmm. and and uh, but, you know i take uh, instrumentalist uh, you know approach towards a knowledge generation yeah? whether mm. it's done within the uh, traditional walls of academia or outside on the streets you know mm -hmm. action research and others yeah and so the 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 ultimate purpose of educating minds and hearts is to improve the quality of uh, humanity we all have within ourselves and also those uh, who are around us and you know beyond and so the if it, and and activism is essentially an application of uh, you know enlightened mind mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, enlarged heart if you will yeah and so it's of course, when we say activism and uh, scholarship, you know, activism is more driven by, you know, um, energy to do good in the world, whereas, uh, uh, you know, the scholarship is supposed to be a bit more demure and uh, detached. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, uh, the, uh, you know, th there is a eternal marriage between what we know and what we do. Yeah. And, and the... Mm. the, the, the you know, the, the, whether it's a scientific knowledge or so-called social scientific knowledge of law and sociology and uh, uh, others. And so I, the, the, the reason I, I you know, I, I get uh, long, long winded uh, about this is uh, uh, it. My mother was an educator, historian and a hmm. poet. Yeah. And, um, uh, and she was a high school teacher. Um, and um, my father was a a small uh, businessman who mm -hmm. uh, had an educated mind and had a, a you know a university education, and so you know I, w I was shaped by you know the, uh, their worldviews, you know, mm -hmm. and their worldviews was very firmly rooted in uh, um, essentially compassion towards those who are. Uh, less fortunate. Mm -hmm. um, also, you know, the idea of being truthful, being honest. Yeah, and uh, uh, w growing up, uh, I, I, you know, like every other, um, like like every every kid. Uh, you know, when you are afraid of when you mm -hmm. want something, you know, you embellish things or you lie straight out. Yeah. <laughs> And mm -hmm, uh, very true. lying is not a goal. Yeah. Lying is an instrument, a medium. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. And there's uh, the, there are other goals uh, for which people lie. Yeah, children lie. You know that we lie because we don't want to be held responsible for what we have done. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be spanked. And you know, I was 
you know, raised at a time when uh, the corporal punishment, you know, spanking was uh, a norm for, yes. for parents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, being being shaped, whipped into someone who need to be truthful and honest. Yeah. And 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 you, we cannot be either scholar or activist unless we are truthful and honest. Yeah, mm -hmm. both endeavors, you know, are or supposed to be devoid of uh, spins. You know. Yeah. And scholars cannot do spins, and neither can um, activists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, where the uh, activism and scholarship uh, converge is this, you know, uh, truth-centered, you know, pursuit of uh, different goals. You know, generation mm -hmm. of knowledge and generation of change, but that has to be anchored in something that we call truth. You know, with either big T or small T. And so, mm -hmm. the, the reason I mentioned this is that, you know, being truthful, being honest, you know, and uh, you know, privileging or uh, honoring or valuing your own personal integrity. You know, intellectually, morally, and personally above everything else you know there are so many gains and you know like a lucrative uh, pursuits that a, a person yeah. of means can always pursue yeah mm -hmm. uh, but i think you know most of what i have done is against my material interest yeah. you know it it, it is yeah. obviously not a sign of an intelligent uh, careerist or husband or father. You know what I mean? <laughs> like what kind of rational man will pursue things that are manifestly against his material interest, mm -hmm. you know, whether money or career in a prestigious university or, uh, you know, uh, economic safety. But what mm -hmm. I've done is the total opposite of any of those things that rational minds would pursue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when... and but but the, 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 you know the the strength to pursue something that most people would not pursue, the strength to make choices that most people don't make, you know, comes from my upbringing. upbringing. Mm -hmm. Because my own mother, um, uh, you know, would uh, she was she was not a hardcore progressive student activist at the university, but she was on the peripheries of. Um, student union activism at uh, Mandalay mm -hmm. universities in the late 1950s and mm -hmm. early 1960s, you know, uh, as a young history and political science student, uh, she was involved in, uh, you know, student government elections. In the, in mm -hmm. the grander scheme of things, like campus activism is just, um, you know, I wouldn't say it is consequential, but it, it is not a national politics or even towns council elections, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. student government you know, with little mm -hmm. budgets and, and, and a tiny power over what happens on campus, music or culture or, you know, curriculum. And so but she took an interest in um, uh, progressive courses. Hmm. Uh, the, 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 the this is quite interesting because um my mother came from a, a, what we call very, very old family in Mandalay, and her ancestors were part of the, um, you know, the um, the court, the last dynasty. Oh, but she, she interesting. Was, there are, obviously, they, they were not blue-blooded royals. It's not that I believe in uh, <laughs> royalty 
feudalism, you know, I was I'm very much <laughs> uh, Marxist influence, and so I consider feudalism. Uh, well, but it's but it's reality still. I mean, it happens yeah. in countries. Yeah. And and so you know she 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 uh, her ancestors were part of the inner circle of the court you know managing the uh, treasury uh, the royal archives you know uh, uh, so so way up there and but she never talked about those things uh, primarily because by the time she was born and she came of age we we were very much a humiliated um, you know national uh, community because we were. The, the last king of Burma surrendered, uh, you know, instead of fighting uh, to the left, to, to, to the uh, to the last um, uh, man against the invading British. And so, so the so the, our city, the last seat of the capital uh, or the last seat of the kingdom was called Mandalay. You know, that's the capital that was immortalized by the British uh, colonial poet Rudyard um, Kipling, you know, mm-hmm, in his mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, the road to Mandalay. Yeah, the road. To Mandalay. Um, we the 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 city was, you know, littered with um, these remnants of the old courts. They're old families, and we were uh, one of them. Hmm. And so, you know, it was something that we did we did not take pride in hmm. because we were the defeated, the humiliated, and the conquered. Uh, hmm. You know, locked, if you will. Uh, so hmm. it's. You know, um, no one was looking at the past glories and wealth and riches anymore. And so my mother, uh, like many of her old uh, contemporaries, were attracted to uh, progressive ideas, hmm. you know, uh, equality of woman and man, uh, you know, like fair wages, uh, the living conditions. So she talked about, um, you know, when I was young, I was the oldest of eight children and uh uh, when my mother started teaching at her high school, and uh, you know, the, the 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 next year she got me. This was uh, '63. She started teaching in '62, uh, 1962. And uh, when I was uh, able to comprehend, um, you know, uh, when I was in elementary school, like she started uh, sharing uh, her memories of university days and you know activism and the kind of people she admired. Yeah, and also she didn't talk about. You know, she did not say that she had, she she admired the rich and the famous or the powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, but, um, you know, the, the, by the time um, I was born, we were already under the um, the early uh, uh, in the early days of the military dictatorship. You know, the dictatorship mm-hmm. began in 1962, and uh, you know, I was born the next year, 1963. Mm-hmm. And so the 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 ones that were most powerful were military officers, right? Uh, because they were the power holders. They control the economy. They control mm-hmm. all the ministries. It was a dictatorship. And 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 my mother, um, uh, my mother's family um, produced, um, you know, essentially like a two or three generations of military officers. Mm-hmm. Some of them are, you know, rose to a, a very high. High up uh, in the in the ranks, and um, she, she did not present her relatives, either brothers or uncles or whoever, as as people that I should admire. You know? Wow! And so, mm-hmm. and then so, so the, 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 to finish my uh, the thoughts on this, um, she talked about um, you know these labor organizers who went on hunger strike, <laughs> and blocked streets and traffic. 
you know, to she int- my mother introduced me to the idea of humans, you know, mm. starving or attempting to starve themselves to death for things that they believe in. And, um, you yeah. know, and then she, then that stayed with me. And, and also this was like, you know, my, uh, 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 I would say like a second or third grade year, you know, very early. I was like seven or eight. And then I also read uh, a tiny bit about like European history, you know, as an mm-hmm. eight or eight years old would understand it in Burmese language. And, and from what my mother told me about these like labor organizers going on fast, to what I read in the little, you know, Burmese history textbooks for kids. I picked up one thing that's from the Roman history uh, or uh, the, you know, Giordano uh, Bruno, uh, the the Mm -hmm. contemporary with Galileo. Yes. He was was burned at stake Mm -hmm. for refusing to believe, refusing to renounce his mm-hmm. what he consider his truth these are the the cosmology of the church mm-hmm. and Galileo renounced it and retained a position at uh, Padua University mm-hmm. yeah and uh, Bruno was uh, burned at stake in Rome yeah and 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 those like momentous stories mm-hmm. you know one was from my mother who was like for a kid that was a huge story. So, you know, I was always, always a hungry kid and always trying to steal food from the kitchen. And uh, <laughs> I would like, you know, give up food for like, you know, the, the, the uh, labor conditions. I never had to work, at, you know, from a comfortable family. Mm-hmm. So I didn't appreciate it. But what really, uh, you know, joined the two together was on one hand, we've got like, you know, local you know, non-historic figures, labor organizer going on hunger strike. On, on the other hand, this well-known historic figure, you know, mm-hmm. from a country that I've never been to or, you know, only heard of uh, as Italy and um, hmm. being burned at stake. And then I was like, why did he not just say, I don't believe in it anymore and save himself? And no, he walked to the... Uh, to, 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 to his execution side, you know, mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, keeping his integrity and yeah. keeping, keeping uh, the, the truth that he knew. Yeah. And then, so these things really form the core of, uh, you know, who I am, you know, mm. if, if there is such a core. So, so the, 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 the idea that uh, one, some people would die for their beliefs, for their mm. principles, for their integrity, yeah. that 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 was formed, uh, you know, when I was about eight or nine years old, and mm-hmm. th- it was not my conscious effort. Mm-hmm. I did not strive to become an activist. If anything, I just wanted to to have a, a, a nice life with a nice mm-hmm. wife and and a yeah. good body, that kind of thing. I, yeah. I never in. It will, I will be lying that I had always been, you know, a, a kid who wants to change the world and pursue these principles. So that's mm-hmm. not it. You know, it's just that once your core is formed, it mm-hmm. gives you a grounding uh, from what... Sorry, this is really long and winding, I know. No, no, no. Not, it, it, no, it's amazing. I, I like the 
the way that your mother had such a big influence in you, um, Zarni. It has in me too. So I think uh, I feel sort of that uh, your life is similar to what I've, you know, lived so far. So it's beautiful to hear and, and how this this extraordinary woman shape your life. To That's very much the conclusion, right? Yeah, it's almost um, universal. You know, that's why languages are called mother tongues, right? <laughs> Civilization is passed on through mothers, not fathers. Your know, fathers may be powerful, but they don't do civilization or consciousness. <laughs> It's the mother, you know. Yeah, it's and, true. Uh, in, in our culture, like you know, the word um, a mother comes before father, you know, like in, in a cultural expression. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it's it's not it's not like a matri you know, it has nothing to do with like a feminism or matriarchy mm. or anything. It's just that you know, uh, the the I've got two children. One's a half American and half Burmese. The other, the new, uh, the the younger one now is almost twelve. She's half British and half Burmese, mm -hmm. and neither of them um, speaks um, Burmese because uh, you know I'm a father, and mostly I'm 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 away traveling, and she's with a British mother, and the older girl's with her American mother, yeah. and, and so the, the I'm just saying the 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 prime importance of motherhood. Mm -hmm. yeah? In, mm -hmm. in shaping the new generations mm -hmm. and uh, it contrary to you know the, the 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 this like macho view that you know oh I'm just a stay home mom you know there's no such thing as just a mom mom is a full-time job that's true Seems such an important job you know that's so true you know and you're and you're and I want to thank you for that really deep and 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 insightful story and background to the work that you're doing. And it reminds me of Raphael Lemkin, the father of the Genocide Convention, who also had a mom who um, who sort of geared him or directed him down that path, not directly, mm -hmm. indirectly, right? But mm -hmm. through engaging in his love of stories and his interest in in a man's cruelty to man, right? Which is a, mm -hmm. an interest he developed when he was around eight or nine years old as well. And that, that you know, um, gave him the conviction later on to pursue the path that he did. And his mom always wanted him to get married and have sort of a stable, <laughs> normal life, right? And he was, he didn't, he couldn't do that. It wasn't part of his his being, do you know? Um I, that I reminds me of that. Because I think mothers maybe you know, I'm not a mother, hopefully one day, but I think mothers don't do it on purpose. You know, mm -hmm. I struggle, and I'm sorry to make this personal, but sometimes I struggle for my mom to understand why I travel to Iraq or why I go to a Rohingya camp. She's like, why? It's dangerous. And, and I say, it's your fault. Yeah. You know, literally, <laughs> my decisions are a consequence of mm -hmm. what you indirectly mm -hmm. had taught me through through growing up right yeah i have so. to say that to my family all the time too you guys did it do you know you may not have meant to but here's, there's yeah, the... since, since you know the conversation started with um sort of an autobiographical note mm -hmm. um uh, you know both my parents are no more and so mm -hmm. you know i mm -hmm. i yeah. i think that to be fair to my father um yeah you know my uh, of course, we were all formed by both, uh, you know, even yes, an yes. absentee father. My father was not an absentee father. You know, he was yeah. uh, very close to me as well. Nice. And so, you mm -hmm. know, this, 
the um, you know the 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 integrity, the uh, truthfulness, and the principleness came from my mother, mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. and the 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 courage to take on that your surrounding, whatever you know, mm-hmm. whether it's street fight or mm-hmm. you know uh, the uh, the talking back to a teacher or you know the, the that came from my father mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. like you know I saw my parents um, <clears throat> you know. A total. Um, I saw my father one day in ten years, yeah. uh, twenty-four hours wow. in ten years wow. before wow. passing. Yeah. Oh. And um, the, the, oh. uh, the, mm. this was across the Thai Burmese borders because uh, uh, the, the, when when I started getting active on Burma uh, publicly, mm. like mm-hmm. lobby and campaigns and whatnot, I deliberately made the choice of. Uh, not communicating with my parents in any mm-hmm. way, shape, form. Oh, how know, painful, no yeah. Because I I was safe in the United States as a student, mm. and my parents were there, and then, like, they were dropping mm-hmm. by the, gov- uh, the military intelligence. Exactly. And um, I didn't want my parents to say anything on the phone out of like anger, you know, not sure. towards me, towards the regime. Right. And yes. also, I don't, I didn't want to give the regime any excuse to, um, you know, to take my parents in or my family, yeah? mm-hmm. because I, I came from a family of say like eight children, and most of them at the time lived with my parents. And so, you know, if they were to lie, you know, like for nine people without me, having mm-hmm. to keep one story straight is not easy. Yeah. And so I only wanted to give them a single reality so that they didn't have to lie. You know, did your brother call? No. Did your brother write to you? No. You know, mm-hmm. did, did you speak uh-huh. to your son? No. And wow. so that's why for the longest time, like, you know, three or four years, I when I was... Uh, in the government newspaper, a military attacking me, slandering, you know, or uh, me in any way they they wanted. Uh, um, I completely uh, sever my ties with my family, mm-hmm. and uh, and so the only uh, <clears throat> the only time when I actually uh, decided that I'm I was going to call my parents no matter what was when I. Um, became a brand new father and so I, oh. I i mean i hesitated and okay i need to tell that dad now i've got a little girl and, and so she was born at uh, george washington university hospital in D, and i was living in uh, near dupont circle and so i wanted my parents to know that this was such a big deal you know for a, a person a son mm-hmm. or a daughter to let parents know that you're uh, a new mom, or, or, or and so you know, they could be there. But, so, uh, but even such mundane act of telling your parents that you're a dad or mom uh, require like a serious thinking. Yeah? yeah, like this is this is not something that will cross any anyone's mind in if you live in a normal, healthy mm-hmm. situation. Yeah? Right, and I lived in. Right. Yes, but my reality is, you know, half Burmese with my parents and family yeah, there. Yeah. So yeah, what I yeah. did was uh, I, um, I actually pinched my newly born daughter so that she would cry, so that my parents could hear her oh, voice. So oh, so lovely. Yeah, that is very nice. This was before, uh, 
the Skype and Facebook, yeah? And mm-hmm. so I, I, I tell you, that's a soppy story. I'm just saying the, um, the, 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 the kind of um, uh, consequences that one faces when you are actually doing uh, <coughs> human rights activism in the context where, uh, you know, the activists disappear, get tortured, their family members, uh, you know, tortured. So the, I got into this because I wanted to talk about my father because my, when I saw him in that 24-hour period across the border mm-hmm. on the ties, this was in 1997, with um, he and my mother crossed over. Uh, pretending that they were just like the mundane smugglers or little traders across the border. They came over. I picked them up from um, from the border, went to the Golden Triangle where there were like a, a more decent uh, uh, hotels where we could be safe. And then they, both of them told me that under no circumstances, I was uh, to give up my activism. And my father said, you know, like they have uh, taken me in for questioning and I play them, you know, say, oh, I don't approve of what my father, uh, my son was doing. Mm. I will kill him if I see him, that kind of thing. Right. Just to protect him. In face to face, he he said, even if they threaten to kill me, you know, don't come back and don't stop. And my, Mm. and, and my, my mother actually was a much stronger person than my father. Mm -hmm. And then years later, she would write to me and say, I, you know, I did not cry in front of you because I did not want to weaken your resolve. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. you know, she, she cried inside and then she cried when when I was no longer in her side. But uh, the, she, they both wanted to give me that strength and a total blessing, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. that I don't have to worry about fulfilling my uh, obligations as the oldest son uh, ah. you know, the sons in a yes. family situation sure. sons mm-hmm. are expected to take care of the siblings and parents and you know financially mm-hmm. and otherwise and I, I was able to mm-hmm. do none of that you mm-hmm. know I was consumed by what I was doing so I think like both of them have shaped me and I would not mm-hmm. be doing what I'm doing you know I kept going you know every over the last 30 years, I would be lying if I did not, you know, think that I should quit. And I wanted to quit. Every morning, I would, what am I doing? Like, you know, I have little money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I yes. have no money. I keep doing it. And they're like, it's stupid. Uh, why do I have to suffer? I, I can get a good job. And I keep going. You know, I keep telling myself I should quit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I've been telling myself to quit for the last 20 years. And I've, here I am still going. <laughs> and so... <laughs> That came from my parents. You know, That's, I think well, mm-hmm. my parents told me I must not quit. Well, not That's that I'm obligated, but you know, they have faith in me, and um, mm-hmm. you know, they 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 blessed me. Yeah, and wow. because I'm not a believer, so I don't go to church, I don't go to monastery. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, if uh, I feel this is the, you know. I mean, basically, I got everything I needed as an activist to keep going from my parents. They said, do wow. anything you want at the risk of our lives. I mean, what more could you ask for you know, truly, from your parents? Truly, that's truly, very truly. moving and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Do you know, it, it, that reminds me, your story reminds me of so many um, historical figures like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
who also who who uh, resisted the the German pastor who resisted the mm-hmm. National Socialists and was executed right before the end of World War II. But his entire family supported his activities, knowing how dangerous they were. And um, he seems was to have grown up in. Of, was he executed at Auschwitz? No, he was executed in a. I forget the name. It was a small camp I, outside I, of, of of Hamburg. There was a Catholic priest uh, at Auschwitz <gasps> at, at, at uh, you know block number eleven. That yes. was you know mm-hmm. the, the most notorious block, mm-hmm. and um, he offered himself uh, for you know execution. Basically, he took the place of a Jewish prisoner who mm-hmm. was right next next to his cell. And told the SS, you know, um, you know, to buy a little bit of time for his cellmate. Um, you know, why don't you take me now and do it late? Do him later. And then obviously yeah. the uh, the other, uh, the Jewish inmate survived. That's how we mm-hmm. knew. Offer himself up for execution. Mm-hmm. Against the wall. Yes, his so name I was. was uh, yeah, I just looked up his name because I had forgotten it. But that's, that's such a beautiful story. His name was Maximilian Kolbe, and he, he okay. offered to volunteered to take the place of a fellow Auschwitz prisoner sentenced. Yeah, to I, death. I visited yeah. his cell. That's how I knew uh, yeah, there was a little flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's a beautiful. By, by him because I was very negative about the church. You know, as you know, the role <laughs> of the church in, right. in the whole cause was you know less than admirable. You mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, like, you know, when when you read a story like this, uh, Catholic priest, yeah. it basically, you know, like basically he redeemed the entire, um, uh, um, you know, church. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like yep. Because uh, there were uh, yeah. there were believers who followed, uh, you know, the the the, uh, the compassion, the mm-hmm. compassionate part, as opposed to you know, exp- political expediency, which yes. the church was engaged in. Absolutely, you're I, I, absolutely I right. I wanted to bring a more recent example in Myanmar, actually, Zarni, the Catholic nun that uh, kneel in front of the police officers mm. or the security forces who were about to kill the children, and she said, kill me, take me, right? You, I'm sure you saw her. Yes, and, yes, yes, she said. Uh, a Baptist uh, nun, none. Uh, yes. Catholic or Baptist, I'm not sure. I think maybe Catholic in 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 northern uh, part of Burma in the city called uh, Michina. Yeah, I think yeah. she was Catholic, but I'm not sure. You know more. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. like a Catholic yeah. sister. Yes, it, it is extraordinary, and uh, mm-hmm. we did not see this um, from the Buddhist monks. Hmm. You know, I was huh. raised Buddhist. And, um, I must say, I'm 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 ashamed of how they have been behaving. Uh, you know, uh, in yeah. this group, uh, the the latest, um, you know, what we call early summer or like spring revolution, yeah. uh, the, you know, compared with uh, that Catholic sister mm. who mm-hmm. was obviously prepared to take the bullets yeah, on the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, really, it's, it's, it's remarkable. It's, Let's, it's, sorry, yeah, go, go ahead, ahead. Zani. No, no, no. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's an example of uh, the power of compassion. Yeah, your life yeah. means no longer uh, uh, as important as others. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. And, uh, you know, it, it defies the idea of self-preservation. Who mm-hmm. will want to take the bullets? You know, on behalf of yes. other humans. Mm-hmm. You know, the the first thing that we, you know, we learn to do is um, to save ourselves. And right. Here, are extraordinary humans. You know, Catholic nuns, uh, Catholic uh, bishop. Who mm-hmm. were prepared to be killed so that they could, so that other others could live. 
It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's that a very, very powerful, moving, yeah. exemplary tale. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, 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 go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, no. Sorry. It's just I was gonna say that that compassion sort of overcomes that instinct of survival, right? Mm -hmm. Because as animals, we do have an yeah. instinct to survive. We protect ourselves. We run if we hear a strong noise, for example, or something that could put us in danger. Mm -hmm. And yet these people in this total chaos are capable of somehow, instead of having that instinct, totally the opposite, having an instinct of compassion to save others. So it's unbelievable when I saw the photos of the nun and she also gave us video and she said she couldn't take any more people being killed in the streets. The violence is, is terrible. And I'm sure Elisa probably you want to ask about that, but the level of violence against uh, 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 the youth is, is, is very high. And she was expressing that in the video when she was asked why she would, you know, she finally didn't die. They didn't shoot at her, but um, she was willing just to die there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it goes back to Zarni, what you were talking about earlier with integrity. I think mm -hmm. when you look at rescuers or, or people who've sacrificed themselves at these horrible times of mass atrocity for others, um, you know, they they seem to be suddenly seeing themselves as the other, right? And and so they are almost preserving themselves through their sacrifice as if they couldn't continue living knowing they hadn't um, mm -hmm. sacrificed themselves in that way, or at least risked mm -hmm. that sacrifice. Many of the righteous of the nations, people who've mm -hmm. been deemed righteous of the nations, who, who survived, who, who were not yes. necessarily killed, you know, they don't see themselves as heroes. They just could not understand at that moment acting in any other fashion. So they were acting in their truth you know, and in, in accord with their own integrity. So I think, you know, this this just echoes just perfectly what, what you were saying earlier about your own um your own views of, of scholarship and activism and um and the truth. So it's marvelous. And I'm wondering if we can um move into now what is going on in Myanmar and, and the struggle that you've devoted your life to and I'm going to ask you two questions, and you can answer them any way that you want. They're related. And one is, as we know, Myanmar has been under military rule for decades with a short period of democracy. And so we're wondering if you can give us sort of a brief on how the military came to power and how it became such a strong institution. And then maybe comment a little bit on how you how you see uh, the military violence uh, uh, committed against the Rohingya and other ethnic and religious minorities relating to the current much more generalized violence that seems to be being committed against the uh, majority population in Myanmar? Well, <coughs> historic, I mean, I, I have to like uh, give a, a bit of contextualized mm -hmm. his, historical uh, yes. perspective uh, to, to, for anyone mm -hmm. to understand. Um, mm -hmm. As you know, the um, the current national armed forces known as Tamadol, it just simply means like royal military. Mm -hmm. um, you know, harking back to the old, uh, you know, uh, glorious days of uh, military em empire buildings, you know, like, you know, 16th century, 17th century, that kind of thing, until 
the kingdom was crushed, uh, you know, towards the end of the 19th century by the British. And so the, you know, the, so the the anchor point for uh, the nationalism and Burmese pride uh, is really uh, feudal, feudalism, right? the old feudal past. And so during the, uh, you know, during the British rule, uh, about 120 years, you know, from 1824 to 18, uh, sorry, uh, 1947, uh, with the a short interregnum of three years during the Second World War, uh, when the country today was uh, occupied by the fascist Japanese for three short years, and so the um, the 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 Burmese were uh, prohibited from carrying any fi- form of sharp object, yeah, and uh, you know, uh, not a knife cannot be. Hmm. You know, not even a knife can be found on on a, on a man walking on the street, right? And and here you have a very militaristic uh, so-called martial people, you know, that use the sword to to conquer and attack neighboring kingdoms and build, expand their uh, you know wealth and territorial and population base, crushed totally by a superior colonial power. You know, i.e., the British, and then banned, uh, you know, from carrying even un, uh, even concealed knife, yeah? and and so the that uh, wounded uh, um, national pride, if you mm. will, uh, you know, resurged after the uh, the the very first armed organization was formed in 1942. You know, during in the middle of a Second World War, with Aung San Suu Kyi's martyred father, Aung San, uh, in his late twenties, uh, under the patronage of uh, fascist uh, Japanese naval intelligence, uh, it was to be uh, the the Japanese fascists at the time were looking to dislodge the British rule across all over Asia because uh, their their slogan was Asia for Asians and you know but they were going to be the more equal Asians <laughs> in, in an Orwellian sense uh, <laughs> so so the Aung San became a proxy head of the national army that was set up by the British uh, sorry by the Japanese he was trained along with uh, his uh, uh, young comrades, you know, we call them thirty comrades, and so the the, the national armed forces of Burma um, had this fascist DNA. Yeah. Wow. And um, uh, but Aung was a Marxist-inspired, secularist, uh, revolutionary, and revolutionary intellectual. He was now never a, a tyrannical, uh, you know, dictator. Yeah. He listened to uh, colleagues. Uh, uh, that he listened to, you know, others, um, and also, you know, he was head of this, you know, uh, the Japanese fascist supported uh, uh, or patronized the national armed forces called like Damado, uh, only for a short, um, you know, four years or three years really, 
And then like a British re-enter Burma after the Japanese surrendered. And we were under the British rule for, uh, you know, say like 46, 40, so only about two and a half years. And that was really a transitional year where, the transitional period where the British were really, you know, negotiating with the, uh, with the Burmese nationalists. Uh, for their honorable exits from Burma. Yeah? Britain was reduced to a uh, rather impoverished nation after the war. It was the uh, United States that emerged, uh, you know, and, and also U USSR that emerged as two major victors of the Second World War. And Britain was in no position to retain its uh, colonies across the world. And, and, and uh, you know, it was uh, going to give up uh, the, made the crown colony India, and they're like, you know, a smaller one, but important uh, rice uh, supplier, Burma. And so th this is the military that uh, was initially put on the path towards the professionalization. Hmm. And uh, the British and the uh, uh, um, uh, the head of the uh, Burma army at the time, Aung San, they negotiated in uh, Sri Lanka, or at the time called Ceylon, because uh, Ceylon or Sri Lanka was the headquarters for, uh, you know, the British-led uh, Southeast Asian uh, forces, uh, or force, um, allied forces in Southeast Asia. And Aung San was, uh, you know, told that if Burma was to become a democratic, independent country, the military needs to be subservient to the civilian control. And therefore, he was given a choice of uh, staying on as the chief of staff or the commander-in-chief of the independent Burma army, or step down and lead the nation in nation building. And so, you know, Aung San being a revolutionary intellectual, more interested in building the union of a, a new country out of a myriad of different ethnic groups, he stepped down. Hmm. Um, and then like the, the second commander in chief that succeeded him was an ethnic uh, Karen, a minority uh, professional soldier. Yeah. Uh, a British educated, trained at, at the uh, Royal Academy of uh, uh, Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst in in Surrey in UK. So he came from a, a radically different military background, where military was a professional force, uh, subservient to democratic control and never interfere in politics, right? Like a, like you know all that American or British tradition, right? And so. He was at the helm of this armed forces yeah, uh, at the time of Aung San's assassination. Uh, and then, like, you know, when he became uh, within one year uh, of Burma's independence, uh, uh, the his ethnic minority community uh, uh, waged an armed revolt against the uh, multi-ethnic uh, central state and uh, the the Burmese politicians who were at out, you know, the peers of Aung San, who succeeded Aung San's uh, position, including Prime Minister Ulu, who was uh, quite well known uh, at the time as one of the founders of non-aligned movements, hmm. um, and they were racist towards this Karen professional soldier, hmm. leading a newly independent uh, Burma's national armed forces, and they could not see past the, his ethnic identity as a Karen. Mm. They could not understand that a professional soldier, uh, uh, you know, would 
act in the interest of the entire state. You know, that's his defense function. He was not there serving and advancing the interest of his ethnic community. He was there to serve the interest of the entire state. And so unable to understand or appreciate this professionalism that a center's trained, uh, you know, commander-in-chief brought to the service, they, they sacked him and put in his place one of Aung San's uh, uh, earlier colleagues trained by uh, Japanese fascists. Yeah? Uh. And, and he, uh, that was Nguyen. This was in February 1949. Nguyen was not just simply one of, you know, like a, say like a, a, a 30 bur young Burmese trained by the Japanese uh, fascist naval intelligence. He was one of the very, very few Burmese, uh, you know, trainees of uh, Japanese naval intelligence who was sent to uh, Tokyo to undergo intensive um, training called Kimpei Tai. Kimpei Tai is a cross between um, SS and Gestapo. Yeah? Mm. And the Kimpei Tai was the instrument of genocide in Manchuria, uh, the instrument that initiated and institutionalized a comfort call in uh, Korea, uh, was the instrument that that uh, uh, used uh, forced labor across uh, uh, fascist-occupied Southeast Asia. So this man, Ne Win, uh, took over the commander-in-chief of uh, the uh, armed forces from February 1949 and remained at its uh, as the most powerful figure until July 1988. So Nguyen mm -hmm. shaped and molded this entire army along the lines, or along the only lines he knew, which was essentially, um, you know, Burmese SS. Yeah, wow. that is what—that is why, like you know, people find it extremely difficult to understand that a standing national army would resort to terrorism mm -hmm. against, uh, you know. Like, you know, I think about a month ago, 12 heads of national um, militaries, including the U.S. Joint Chief uh, and, you know, like a British and others, 12 national armed forces and their chiefs issued a two paragraph, but very blunt, you know, official statement telling the Burmese military generals to behave, to, to you know, absorb code of conduct. Uh, you know, befitting national armed forces. This was extraordinary because usually heads of national armed forces do not issue anything on human rights, on on terrorism or anything, you know. Yeah. And so uh, because what we have is an institution that ought to have been dismantled hmm. in 1945. Yeah, that was what happened to Kim Pei Tai in, you know, the... Uh, that was what happened to SS and the uh, you know the Nazi uh, war machine, yeah. and 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 so so basically mm -hmm. what we are looking at is not simply you know another run of the mill military institution. We are looking at the continuation of the tradition, the extremely disturbing tradition mm -hmm. of SS and Kimpei Tai in Burma. That is why you know they were able to kill children in front of parents. 
they will, they, you know, if you study Kimpei Tai or SS, one of the things that you learn is sadism. You know, I mean, if, if, we, if we differentiate different mm -hmm. types of violence uh, meted out by state uh, organized uh, organization, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what I call bureaucratic violence, you obey the order, but you don't do beyond it. You don't take pleasure right. in mm -hmm. the fact that you yes. were engaged in violent acts. But if, yeah. if you look at, you know, the uh, SS, they were particular type of mindset. They, they, they were sadists. They took pleasure in mm -hmm. inflicting pains on unarmed civilians. So mm -hmm. that's what we have. So that we have the, you know, we have a, a siege of the country by a Nazi SS-like or Japanese Kempeitai-like uh, armed organizations. Yeah. So this is not just another uh, you know, military institution. So it, you know, to, to to make the long story short, what we are witnessing, uh, I think, like you know, the the is two things. One is that people in Burma all of a sudden realized that uh, the different types of uh, violence and terror that have been meted out by this very same institution takes place on a continuum. Mm. The continuum, mm -hmm. you know, on one extreme, you've got the total destruction or substantial destruction that we call genocide of a targeted national minority community, Rohingya. And then like, you've got a colonial-style occupational mm -hmm. force behavior toward non-Rohingya ethnic nationalities who will be allowed to live and exist as subjugated people. You know, mm -hmm. It's like you know, the Nazis and the Poles. The Poles will be allowed mm -hmm. to live as slaves to yeah. the Aryan races, right? Yeah. But the Jews had to be exterminated. Mm -hmm. So in the exactly. case of Burma, you know, the, uh, the, the Rohingyas were to be ex erased from our uh, history, from the memory, from the physical presence, and, and whatnot, right? So you've got two things. Genocide, total and substantial destruction, and colonial mm -hmm. occupational behavior towards uh, the, the second-class minorities. And then, you know, the, 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 the last, uh, you know, on the continuum was this total terroristic behavior towards the dominant Buddhist community yeah. that formed the greatest majority of the population and therefore posed the greatest threat to the uh, the Burmese army. So what we are seeing is is a situ the a national armed force that is worse than what we found in say like you know Serbia um, at mm -hmm. the um, at the collapse of Yugoslavia, you know mm -hmm. six republics and the Serbian Yugoslavian army was ethnically controlled by the Serbs, right? Mm -hmm. And and uh, the situation of this military is far worse, even mm. for themselves, you know, mm. let alone for the rest of the country. Yeah. Uh, these are be the Serbian-controlled national armed forces that that instigated or supported the uh, Bosnian genocide, yes, yeah, Srebrenica, mm. other places. And I say this because at least this, you know. I don't condone it, and you know I condemn it. What the Serbian National Armed Forces uh, 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 did, or their role, at least they enjoyed nationalist support 
mm-hmm. you know, they were at least seen as the heroes, you know, but in a bad way because yes, they were, yeah. you know, and, uh, but in the case of Burma, we've got a national armed forces within a span of like just a week's you know, when there was a radical shift in the mm. popular consciousness among the public, major, uh, the majority public. Wait a minute, mm-hmm. this is no longer the national armed forces that we had, uh, mm. you know, takes, had taken so much pride in, yeah? And then people initially thought it was like, oh yeah, a few bad apples who became tyrannical generals and the army was, you know, uh, just simply obeying the order to shoot, right? And then the, when they realized that the army was, or the troops were displaying sadistic pleasure, killing like children and women and, you know, threatening to rape and, you know, like showing the kind of mm-hmm. weapons that they would use to kill. Yeah, Tonight, 10 o'clock, I'm going to come and, you know, blow your heads out. These are exact words, yeah? Mm-hmm. This is the weapon that I'm going to use, look at it, this is how it works, that kind of thing. When they, when the sadism became too clear to be, you know, uh, overlooked by the majoritarian Buddhist Burmese society, the shift took place overnight. All of a sudden, even Muslim terrorists who would come in and kill these guys are, you know, to be welcomed with rose petals, Hmm. you know. So that, that level of hatred and rage, yeah, it's like a betrayal of this organization against the people that feed and clothe and supported them for 70 years. Mm-hmm. And so so this is the situation. We have a national armed forces that have taken hostage, you know, 54 million and behave as a, a terrorist organization without a functioning state as such and mm-hmm. without a functioning national economy completely ostracized or in a religious term excommunicated by the society at large that is a scenario yeah and it's the the the, the total break you know uh, ethnically uh, religiously conscious you know in terms of consciousness between the society and this arm organization, uh, it is just simply unprecedented. Yeah. Un- yeah. yeah. May I uh, thank you? Sorry, um, you so no, that. this was fantastic. Yeah, I think that we have to have another session because obviously we won't finish it. But uh, uh, you can chop uh, any any bits uh, that are not clear or not usable. No, we don't want to chop any of it at all. We know that you have to go. So I'm looking at the time. We have six yeah, five minutes. minutes and I leave. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So Irena, go ask your question. We'll make no, it the final I question. To, I maybe. think this will go on. So I just. I just my conclusion is that you have a military that is like a colonizing power at the moment. It's a colonizing power. Sorry. Not not simply a colonizing. It it, it is seen as a fascist like occupier. Exactly. With the fascist by everybody. Exactly. It's a colonizing power with a fascist ideology. And I think what I would love to hear more is the, the, the support it got to get to this place eventually, I mean, I, I'm sure for the many years it has been into power and maybe somehow the military 
authorize Aung San Suu Kyi to be elected democratically? These are my questions that probably we'll have to deal in another podcast to understand how come they've reached to yeah. this point of having so much power without the support of of um of the majority of you of the people as no, you no. say they they, they they have had uh, you know different degrees of support yes. from within the majority yeah? mm -hmm. and they have also uh caused uh, or imposed their control over the economy yeah. uh you know organs of the state and so you know like of course like a no no institution could stay on in power for half a century yeah. without some kind of societal support. And the majority exactly. was guilty, uh, you know, whether uh, uh, through propaganda or, uh, or being willing collaborators of uh, allowing this institution to go on for half a century. But mm -hmm. what, I, what I've just presented uh, is essentially how the sudden shift took place. Yeah. Yeah? Yes. It is it is seismic. It is revolutionary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like you know Black Lives Matter consciousness mm -hmm. shift. Yeah. It's no longer acceptable to see, you know, the Italian uh, Columbus as the uh, discoverer of the uh, you know the the, exactly. the Americas. of the Americas. Yeah, but that is completely Huge. no no. You know, yeah. it's like a Me Too kind of thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, the, it's no longer okay to think of certain things in a particular way and that's what we have had and that is you know like that is revolutionary yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely and it's so mm -hmm. interesting we definitely have to have you back on i'm looking at the time <laughs> i know Zarni has well, another you know, engagement we're only on a, the, the first or second question i, <laughs> I know I'm really, so I'm really <laughs> I think we could go on for three hours, but then totally, I'm totally hooked. But Zarni has another he, poor man. He has to. He has another appearance that he has no, to make, like in two minutes. So Zarni, we'll end it there. We do want to have you back on. We knew already that we wanted to have you back on to talk about the Rohingya genocide, right? Yeah. And the current ICJ case be, between the Gambia and Myanmar. But now we want to have you back on also to talk about this seismic shift and the future of yep. Myanmar and also the daily struggles of, of the citizens of Myanmar given this yep. new situation. Um, so we will definitely have you back on as soon as your schedule will provide. And we <laughs> yeah, cannot... Draw, just draw me, yeah. draw me a note and <laughs> then I reschedule another one. And, and, and forgive me for being so long-winded. I'm, I'm not really... at all. No, not <laughs> You're not long-winded at all. These are really complicated things. And this was so cogent and so informative, so exciting and so interesting. And we it's cannot fantastic. thank you enough. For, for coming on our podcast and, and supporting our podcast with your presence. So thank you so much, Zarni. Thanks so much. I'm going to have two minutes break now. Yes, okay. <laughs> we will you. say bye-bye. Thank, thank, okay. thank you, Zarni. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 And thanks to everyone else. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining us today. Uh, for our anti-genocide coffee break. Uh, we wish you a very, very healthy and safe week ahead. And we will tune in with you in a week's time. Thank you so much. And thanks, Irene. Thank you, Elisa. This was fantastic. It was Thank you. Really